morning, Stephen. How's it going? Good morning. Good, thanks. Although I did think I was going to be talking to Eric, but instead I see I'm talking to Freddie Mercury. <laughs> Hello, it's me, Freddie. <laughs> I see a little silhouette of a man. <laughs> uh, actually, I found quarantine to be rather inspiring. I mean, it just opens up a whole new realm of possibilities uh, for facial hair experiments. <laughs> Experimentation is the right word. Oh <laughs> uh, Well, uh, I figure there's quite a bit to cover this morning, so uh, why don't we just get right to it? Seamless transition, but yeah, <laughs> let's get on with it. Okay, <laughs> sounds great. Um, well, these past five Sundays, Stephen, you've preached about the church in Corinth, and let me just say right away that when you mentioned that when Paul was writing these letters to the, the church in Corinth, that they were approximately the same age as Trinity Heights Church is now, that kind of threw me for a loop. I, I guess hearing about the various issues that they were dealing with, uh, sexual immorality, legalism, strange holier-than-thou hierarchies, I mean, I found it to be encouraging, actually. I'm not claiming that Trinity Heights is perfect in any way, but reading about the church in Corinth has the same feeling for me as watching a movie uh, that has incredibly f flawed, dysfunctional characters. <laughs> I don't know uh, if you saw the, the, the recent uh, thriller Parasite. Did you see right. that? I, I haven't yet, no. But yeah. uh, our very own David Kim did the trailer for it. That's right, yeah. Uh, well, it's an amazing movie, and it, you should check it out. But um, you essentially watch these characters strive to better themselves. Uh, they, they work with good, you know, albeit incredibly flawed intentions, and then everything just starts to go terribly wrong. And at the end of the film, I remember feeling really attached to the characters, but also feeling really sorry for them uh, while simultaneously feeling really good about my own life and my own current situation, <laughs> essentially thinking, well, at least I'm doing better than those guys in, in Parasite. <laughs> Yeah, I think reading reading about the church in Corinth does have that kind of effect. Yeah. Uh, like I said earlier on, that, that I'm sure they would have preferred that this letter had never been kept and copied and yeah. then canonized. You know, oh. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that had they known that it was going to get broadcast through the ages, they they would have burned the letter right after reading it. Yeah, uh, but you know, they they didn't, thankfully, and and so we get to think about their mistakes and and we have Paul's written response to them. And yeah, that that is a, an incredible resource for I think young, any young church mm -hmm. um, to to navigate the. the those very particularly uh, fragile, fragile years. Yeah, and I like what you said um, early on in, in, the, in the series about the fragility of, of newness. Uh, you talked about how you and Julia moved to New York and how everything felt new and exciting, but also incredibly fragile. Relationships with people, getting things done, executing even the simplest of tasks, it all felt like, like that at any moment, uh, things could just come crashing down and the whole dream of planning Trinity Heights uh, would just fall apart. Yeah, there is a kind of fragility for mm -hmm. sure when you're just starting out. It's something that Julie and I uh, really felt quite strongly when we first moved to New York City. And in many ways, we're still in that, that very sort of fragile early stage. And, and yeah. it's something Paul experienced, I think, whenever he showed up in a new town to plant a new church, often just spending a few months in one place before he moved on to the next. So, mm -hmm. so needless to say, he, he was uh, most likely very in tune with the fragility of something so new and fresh. But he also had this incredible gift for developing these really strong, meaningful relationships with sure. people wherever he went. So, so we get this sense whenever we read his letters that he, he cared deeply for these people and he loved the churches he's writing to and, and the people involved in each of these young communities mm -hmm. of, of new believers. Mm -hmm. So he, he writes these very lengthy 
letters um, to, to communities he loved. And I think these letters are, are, are full of wisdom because he, he never really lost sight of, of the big picture. So he, he's, you know, he, he could get very myopic on this new project and this new place and it's all so fragile, but, it, but he always had this big picture. So no matter what came up in, in the life of these new congregations, Paul was always trying to remind these people that they were part of this much bigger story. Mm -hmm. He was working uh, tirelessly to sort of sweep them up, as we said, in, into this sort of cosmic drama. And I, I think this is, this is really powerful because even if you just caught a glimpse of what Paul was talking about, uh, I think you'd immediately recognize you know, so your own sort of pettiness mm -hmm. in, in, in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. I, I like what you said. I think it was either in one of the sermons or maybe it was in a conversation that, that we had. Uh, I can't quite recall, but essentially it was the idea that Paul's letter to the church in Corinth was an invitation to join in God's epic plan to redeem his creation. Mm -hmm. And to that point, I really like the idea of his letters essentially doing away with any kind of, of secrecy uh, that might otherwise exist uh, around this grand plan. Mm -hmm. So when you let the whole right. church... Paul's not, Paul's not starting a, a mystery cult here. Exactly. Right. So when you let the whole church in on what's happening at the highest levels of the church, uh, the grand scheme, the, the, the master plan, then all of a sudden, you've done away with, with any kind of, of hierarchy that might exist or might develop in, in the future. Uh, and I, I re remember, you know, the, these people are deeply broken, uh, these Corinthians, they've made some bad choices and, and the church is suffering as a result. And yet Paul's letter to them is an invitation to the whole church, uh, even if, if they're completely broken or, or right. involved in, in, in immorality and stuff. So you get the sense that, that he's, working to destroy hierarchies and do away with the idea of a creative um, upper class or something mm. like that. He's healing their pettiness and their brokenness in this letter. He's providing an antidote to, to their poison while simultaneously calling them to live on a higher plane of existence. Yeah, he, he is. He's very specifically working to show the Corinthian church that, mm -hmm. that where, where the, look, you stand here in relationship to God, and if you stand here in relationship to God, then, then through that lens, you, you need to understand this is where you are in relationship to each other. Mm -hmm. um, and so it is, it is strange, but it's also very powerful that despite all the ugly divisions in the church mm -hmm. uh, at, at Corinth, uh, Paul still refers to the members of that congregation as saints. Yeah. Uh, saints in terms of the, the meaning of the word as, as it refers to something being sort of set apart for for a unique purpose not 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 someone appearing in, in greek iconography with a with a halo you know? yeah yeah right so oftentimes i think we uh, get confused when we think of this idea of being set apart right so mm -hmm. it's easy to hear this and think well i guess i am worthy of of, of being set apart I, I i'm pretty amazing and and i'm attractive and successful and also very humble and generous and loving and so we start to think that we're set apart maybe like we picture Jeff Bezos uh, or, or, or billionaires being set apart, uh, stooping down from our Christian pedestal to help and to serve. But actually, I like what you said uh, when, when you talked about the more accurate understanding of Paul, Paul's words here. Um, when, when he says that we're set apart, it, it, he actually means we're set apart like the temple was a space mm. set apart from other spaces. It was a place where heaven and earth would meet. Uh, you also use the analogy uh, of essential workers. So they're out doing the vital work that needs to be done, sometimes thanklessly and without being noticed. Uh, so then when Paul says saints, he's talking about 
essential workers that in and of themselves uh, and through the work that they do are actually bridging the gap between heaven and earth. And I really like that idea. It kind of hits me emotionally, almost to the point of kind of choking me up, but it also simultaneously sounds kind of sci-fi. So yeah, no, this is true. And, and look, when we, when we dig into the meaning of Paul's words and, and the fact that he calls the members of the church in Corinth saints, mm-hmm. it, we, we do get the sense that he's, he's calling them, inviting them to live life on this higher plane of existence. Mm-hmm. Essentially the plane, as you've said, where heaven and earth meet. And, yeah. and in this sense, he's, he's opening up this, this, this vast theological vision to them that, that, that neutralize, has the effect of neutralizing. If they get it, it neutralizes yeah. their pettiness. Sure. Uh, you know, a, a while back, I remember talking about this idea with you and, and, and you, you brought up uh, the, the Kardashians. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, as an it, Armenian, <laughs> we don't own them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, 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 we were talking about pettiness or depths of superficiality, I think. And I let myself imagine what the deepest level of, of pettiness might be. And all I could uh, think of were uh, these glimpses of episodes from Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Um, and, uh, you know, the, these, I don't know if you've ever watched it, but it's just a show that's completely saturated with pettiness and split second emotional reactions, right? Uh, and so what if this kind of stuff was plaguing the church in Corinth? And then I started thinking about how our culture or our world uh, might actually be saturated in this kind of approach to some degree. So mm-hmm. people, you know, in their jobs, they get fired for accidentally offending the wrong person. And so that was kind of petty. Or countries go to war because someone can't handle having their, their ego injured. Right. Uh, I guess if we, as a church then, find ourselves functioning on this Kardashian kind of level, uh, then we obviously don't understand the, the vast theological vision that Paul's talking about, right? Mm-hmm. So as the body of Christ, there's no room for pettiness or Kardashianism, no matter how <laughs> tempted we might be to resort to that level of interaction. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and that's why Paul wants them to see that you're part of this one body, the mm-hmm. body of Christ. And, and there is no class system here. There's no hierarchy, at least not in the way that they imagined it within the body of believers. Yeah. So, so just like there's, there's no room for, for pettiness, there's, there's also no room for any kind of sort of holier than thou attitudes. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when, when Paul in, in this letter mentions uh, you know, causing your weaker brother to stumble. He, mm-hmm. He's not saying this that seriously. This is, in fact, a sort of tongue-in-cheek statement. He's using the. He's basically taking the negative attitudes of certain people in the Corinthian mm-hmm. church and, and sort of turning it against them and then calling them out. So ultimately, Paul is saying. Do, do your attitudes and behaviors divide people or do they bring them together? If you're dividing people, something is wrong with your vision for the larger story. You, you don't understand where you are or what God is doing. If your behavior brings people together, on the other hand, and promotes healthy community, well, then that's actually mirroring and reflecting uh, the, the story God is telling about his, his vision for, for people and his renewal of creation. Um, you know, it's, it's not to say Paul, Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't understand that there are spiritually mature and immature people. And in chapter three, he actually speaks about being on, you're on spiritual milk, but you really should be on solid food by now. Um, But again, it's in, he calls them out for being immature, but it's in the context of them creating divisions and hierarchies, right? So, so it doesn't matter what you know, essentially throughout this letter, he keeps saying, it doesn't matter what you know, knowledge puffs up. It doesn't, doesn't matter what your gifts are because the gifts will cease. doesn't matter how much you know or, or what gifts you have. If you're not leading people back to each other, mm-hmm. then you're just, you're immature. Mm. 
Another idea that I'd like to discuss, Stephen, is this idea of apocalypse. So you spent quite a bit of time explaining how our understanding of apocalypse is, in fact, very different from the way that Paul and the entire Jewish tradition understood it, the idea. So essentially, we think of apocalypse as meaning the end of the world, the, the destruction of time and space as we know it. While on the other hand, you have the Jewish tradition and their understanding of it was uh, a large political upheaval happening within reality, time, and space. Uh, and I think that idea was mostly new to me, and I think it would help if you would just maybe recap a bit. Sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I mentioned that our, that our understanding of apoc apocalypse uh, mm -hmm. as, as a category, uh, as, as basically being like the, the end of the world, as you described it, the end of yep. the space-time universe, we can actually trace that idea back to a guy called Albert Schweitzer, who was deeply influenced by Wagner. Uh, mm -hmm. Wagner's Ring Cycle, the opera, uh, gives this sort of very cataclysmic vision for the end of the world of the gods. Uh, and, and the opera spans of, you know, four nights, five mm -hmm. hours each. And, and uh, as I said, I, I still haven't signed up, been brave enough to sign up for that. <laughs> um, one day, one day. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Schweitzer attended that opera no less than three times. And in between wow. all that, he was writing his incredibly influential works on Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Mm. So he comes to the conclusion, right, without actually bothering to actually enter into the world of first century Palestine, well, mm -hmm. he doesn't do that, but he comes mm -hmm. to the conclusion that Jesus expected the end of the world and, you know, the end of the space-time universe, and it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And then the early church expected the end of the world, and then it didn't happen again. <laughs> uh, but that wasn't what anyone was thinking about back then. Um, so this this was just actually a, a brilliant piece of German mythology being mm -hmm. superimposed onto the New Testament by someone who was really rather taken with Wagner and uh, and his opera. Mm -hmm. um, and look, there's, there's no doubt that Schweitzer was a, a brilliant man. He was a polymath. Sure. You know, he was a medical doctor. He wrote his uh, doctoral thesis on the philosopher Immanuel Kant. Uh, he, he wrote another doctoral thesis on on a, uh, a Brahms, was it, or Haydn, a composer. Mm -hmm. he's, a, he's a brilliant organist as well. Mm -hmm. um, and as well as his, his works on Paul and Jesus as, as a very influential theologian. Uh, but, uh, you know, everyone has their blind spots, right? Right, and perhaps it was his own personal genius that actually allowed him to pull it off in, in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so he's deeply influenced by, by the art uh, of, of Wagner's ring cycle. And then he decides that this idea of, of the end of the world that was present in that ring cycle is in fact what the Bible is talking mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. when it, uh, contends with the idea of apocalypse. Uh, but actually, that was never the intended meaning for, for that idea. Right. Um, but if we understand apocalypse to be, I think, revealing uh, this large shift in power or, or a political upheaval that actually occurs within reality, then we start to understand that the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ are, are in fact, both of these things. Um, death is defeated uh, in the resurrected body of Christ, uh, and, and then a new age is, is ushered into existence. Heaven right. has come to earth in the form of a man, and he is the embodiment of, of, of what has been set in motion, essentially heaven and earth being ultimately joined together. So not the end of the world, uh, as Albert uh, Schweitzer thought of it, but mm -hmm. rather an entirely new kind of world resurrected out of our current reality. Yeah, and, and so... No, that's right. And so you, you have these these incredible words in, in Paul's letter, mm -hmm. which I think are these epic apocalyptic words. God's wisdom and God's strength mm -hmm. are, are seen in the crucified Christ. And, and mm -hmm. the wisdom of God 
is is far wiser than the wisdom of men and turns it into yeah. to foolishness and, and the strength of God turns or the foolishness of God turns all of man's uh, wisdom into foolishness uh, and, and weakness and and so um, so, he, so he points to the Jewish and gentle ideas about strength and weakness wisdom and foolishness and says look we all we all know what you think is wise and what you think is strong and powerful and, and with these categories of wisdom and strength you you, you like to size everyone up mm-hmm. He says, I understand the yardstick that you're using to measure a person's worth. But essentially what Christ has done is he's, he's sort of broken this yardstick in two. He's thrown it aside. Wisdom and strength, foolishness and weakness, they've sort of all exchanged places. And the power and wisdom of God has, has essentially confronted the power and wisdom of this world. And, and in the process, our whole way of evaluating each other as, as, as human beings has been turned on its head. Well, that, that's the apocalyptic moment, the, the, the unveiling that, that Paul's pointing to and so we begin I, I think to understand the vastness of, of this story it it makes me think of Christ looking at, at the masses of, of humanity in, in Jerusalem and longing to take them mm-hmm. under his wing like a mother hen to her chicks I, mm-hmm. I, I remember a time three or four years back I, I happened to be out of work and money was really tight running running out essentially and we thought we might have to leave the city uh, and to deal with the stress and the worry, I would walk from Harlem to my studio, uh, well, all the way from Harlem and down to my studio on the Lower East Side, mm. uh, which took about three hours. Long walk, I yeah. Say. yeah, yeah. Uh, and I would use that time to kind of pray and walk. And then you're in New York City uh, pre-COVID, right? So there's lots of people and I'm watching people pass me on the street. And uh, essentially the masses of, of humanity are just passing by and for a while there uh i was somehow able to tap into what i can only imagine was a fraction of of the love that christ felt for Mm. for people um somehow each person that passed uh me as i was walking rather than me seeing them as as a nuisance or just an obstacle to navigate around uh, for the first time in my life I, i felt a deep love for them despite not knowing anything about them and uh they were essentially strangers. So, so maybe, you know, maybe I'm just a better person when I'm unemployed, uh, stripped of, of the identity that I find in my work and, and from money and, and perceived success. I don't know. Yeah, that, I think that, that that's a real thing, isn't it? I think oftentimes mm-hmm. our, our need for approval and, and self, the self-importance that we get from our work or the responsibilities yeah. or, or, you know, different uh, financial success can, can these, these often become our way of evaluating ourselves and other people. And, mm-hmm. and I think, uh, I think the church historically uh, fails miserably whenever we've ignored or just sort of not understood the way in which God's confronted those ways of valuing, evaluating people and, and set them aside, uh, where we just don't understand how wisdom and power has been redefined by God on the cross. Um, and so when we don't, when we don't recognize that, I think what we end up doing is clinging to some weird societal or cultural way of evaluating, uh, ourselves and each other. And, yeah. and so, uh, you know, as we, as we talked about a few weeks ago, that that's where you have the invention of the, the white church and the black church, because the church was just adopting the normal ways, the standard ways of evaluating human beings mm-hmm. in that cultural context, mm-hmm. which was about, in, in that instance, the, the color of your skin. Yeah. Uh, and the so, so the historical reasons for there being a white church and a black church are not are not because you know some people happen to find it easier to identify with certain cultural features of one type of congregation over another. If only if only that were the case, it, it mm. might have some sort of legitimacy to it. But but that's not how that happened. And if only they'd read and understood Corinthians, mm. uh, 
um, those, those racists would not have pushed um, black brothers and sisters out of the church. Right. So in a way, the, the love that, that Paul talks about in chapter 13 is really the outworking of this revolution that sets aside our normal ways uh, of evaluating other right. people, w whether it be racism or anything like, like you mentioned. Yeah, so I mean, I, dude, each culture, each society has its own different ways, yardsticks yeah. and ways of evaluating and placing value on human beings. And, and, yeah. and essentially, yeah, the cross sets all of that aside and says, no, we don't, we don't use those. None of those have any value here. Yeah. Well, I, I like where this is going. And if I can just draw a, a quick parallel. So over here, um, we have that, this apocalyptic event that, that we talked about earlier um, that we said was Christ coming and reinventing human values. Uh, but then we maybe via Albert Schweitzer turned it into this weird sci-fi end of the world mm -hmm. thing that in the end loses its power and ultimately becomes disconnected from our reality. Right. Okay, so that's there. And then on the other hand over here, you have Paul talking about love and uh, he's saying that it's very this, this very deep, uh, powerful thing um, that, that redefines the, the, the way that, that humans uh, are in relationship to one another. But then uh, we have the, uh, our way of understanding it or, or you know, that we may you know, think is the right way, but actually no, because it's this kind of sentimentalism that has to do with weddings and romantic dinners uh, to the point where you have chapter 13 uh, in, in Corinthians right. uh, or the love chapter, right? So being, being read at weddings and it just comes across as this kind of cheesy uh, thing devoid uh, of all meaning because of, of its constant re repetition, almost like if you overplay a, a good song, right? And then it just completely gets destroyed. You don't ever want to hear it again. <laughs> so so that, that is, that's interesting. So we've got sci-fi on the one hand, yeah, sentimentalism yeah. on the other, sure. sci-fi and sentimentalism, and this sort of strips it of, of its meaning and, 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 uh, and power. But, you know, Paul, so again, Paul makes very clear, this isn't, a, a love is not about a feeling or a sentiment. Love love is, is actually, the way he talks about it is in terms of a virtue that combines mm. all the other virtues together. And, and so, if we start thinking of it as a virtue instead of a feeling, right, mm -hmm. then we might actually start to think of love as something that we need to practice and, and cultivate. And I, mm -hmm. and I don't know if we often think of it in those terms, because of course we live in a culture which is all about sort of more spontaneity and, and mm -hmm. doing what comes naturally and doing what you feel. But uh, and we, we sort of really sort of elevate that, that kind of uh, way, approach to life. But my, my first natural spontaneous reaction to someone I perhaps strongly disagree with over a really mm. important issue, just, just for example, right? My first mm. reaction to that person might be one of resentment yeah. or maybe even hatred, right? Mm -hmm. that, because that person's standing in the way of me advancing my ideas, my values, my politics, right? That they're in the way. So my spontaneity in that moment might be a really bad, ugly thing. Yeah. But, but then we have Paul here describing love as, as patient and kind mm -hmm. and not boastful and never giving up and persevering and, and, and all the rest of it. And when he describes it that way, we realize that, that these are things which actually we have to train ourselves into. That they, they may not come naturally. Well, well, I can put it this way. They don't come naturally to me. How about that? Yeah, I, me either. And I think a lot of things uh, that are worth doing don't come naturally. Uh, any skill um, is never just going to present itself to us fully formed regardless of our natural talents or uh, right. 
innate abilities, right? Yeah, you, so, you didn't just pick up a brush and start painting. Right, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and I think you, you talked about um, uh, Sully Sullenberger, right? The, the right. captain of, of the, the flight that crash landed on, on the yeah. Hudson. So this actually does, yeah, yep. This actually does remind me of, of Sully Sullenberger um, because, right, so the, the, the plane was hit by a flock of geese and you, you talked about how it crash landed in, in Hudson. Everyone survived. It was a successful mm -hmm. landing despite how hard it was to do a successful water landing. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, a while back, I, I actually read Sully's, uh, Captain Sully's biography. And one thing that I didn't know and that he talks quite a bit about in the book is um, that early on in his career and then throughout his whole career, even as a young pilot, he was obsessed with studying the intricate details of past plane crashes. Huh. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. So to the point where he would listen to, to black box recordings and study the mechanical remains of crashed planes and try to decipher just exactly what went wrong in each of these individual cases. Wow. Um, so we may say, oh, well, he was just a skilled pilot who also just so happened to be lucky that day on, on the Hudson. But in fact, uh, Captain Sully is very open about the fact that all of his accumulated knowledge about plane crashes kicked in that day uh, and he was able to, to land successfully. Um, so when we think about something coming naturally, uh, you know, in, in, with regards to, to Sully Sullenberger, it didn't come naturally. It came from hundreds of hours of research and then that on top of years in the cockpit. Right, and, and, and then it became second nature, right? Yeah. Uh, yep. You know, I, I didn't actually know that about him, but yeah, mm. that, that just makes the analogy work even better. So, yeah. so you're in a plane, it's going down, right? Um, mm. uh, who do you want? The, the, the pilot says, we're, we're going to crash land, brace mm -hmm. yourselves. Who do, who do you want in the cockpit? Do, mm. do you want me up front doing what comes <laughs> naturally? <laughs> Being spontaneous, I can be spontaneous, <laughs> just like the next guy. Or, yeah. or, or do you want Captain Sully up front operating out of this incredible framework of, of incredible discipline? Yeah. Uh, th there has to be that framework of discipline, first of all, so that, that one day my spontaneous reaction, my mm. second nature reaction might actually be loving. Um, so, so, you know, if we want to tie it all back to Paul's ideas about what counts as, as spiritual maturity and spiritual immaturity, you know, mm -hmm. see, seeking unity is spiritual maturity, divisiveness mm -hmm. is spiritual immaturity. Um, so, you, you know, you just keep that in mind as, as you read Paul's description of love, where he says, you know, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, love does not boast. Um, it's not easily angered. Uh, it, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Well, you know, the, these, are, these are all the characteristics you might expect to find in a person whose life is a bridge that, that brings us all together. And, uh, you know, I have to say that, that you know, when, when we're all dead, if the only thing that people can say about us is that mm. we, we brought all these very different people together mm. and we worked hard and invested our lives in, in binding our lives up with each other. Mm. Well, that's all that really matters. Mm. That's great. Thanks so much, Stephen. This this past sermon series was really inspiring, and I uh, just want to say thanks. Thanks so much. You bet. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and thanks uh, to all of you for listening in. Uh, Stephen and I obviously love having these conversations, and it's good fun for us. Um, and uh, yeah, just reach out. Let us know. Uh, we'd love to keep the conversation on Corinthians going. Uh, and just so you know, next week we'll have our, uh, well, we have a new ser sermon series kicking off, uh, led up and head up by our very own uh, Tim Kreber.
We look forward to that next week. Take care. 